Welcome to Mad River Anthology. This is John Brugaletta. Our guest today is Catherine Burleson, an artist who lives with her husband in Trinidad. Some of her watercolors are on display at Christ Episcopal Church in Eureka. Catherine has recently discovered that she also has a talent for writing poetry, and I wanted to make some of her poems available to North Coast listeners. Catherine, how are you? Just fine. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. One of the poems, uh, uh, when I looked at your your poems, the, the one that struck me first was called The Guest. Would you read that for us, please? Yes. Last night, I dreamed that God had come to visit. He was here in my house, relaxing on the daybed, quite at ease and comfortable, wearing white cotton pajamas in the Indian style. For us, it was bit, a bit of an occasion to have him here, and we weren't quite sure how to behave. It was like being with a distant relative, that unexpected level of comfort and familiarity around someone that you don't really know and haven't spent that much time with. So while it seemed the most natural thing in the world to have him here, it was also a little strange and awkward. All he asked, but he didn't use words for this, was that one by one we go to his side, touch his hand, and in doing so, receive his blessing. But some people didn't even want to do that, which seemed odd to me. It was such an easy thing to do, and he was asking so little of us. Now that I think of it, he seemed a little weary, and I can certainly understand that. I don't think he ever tires of loving or forgiving, but he still has to put up with us and we can make things so difficult. No wonder that from time to time, he needs a little rest. That's a, a very striking poem. I guess I'm repeating myself now, but it is. God in white cotton pajamas. How did that image come to you? Do, you, do, do images come to you the way they do when you're painting? Um, you know, it's different. I, uh, when I write poetry, I tend to relate it to something concrete in my past, in my memory. And the uh, white cotton pajamas really referred to uh, Meher Baba, who um, was a holy man, an Indian holy man, who died in, I believe, 1961. Um, he was... He, I first encountered him during my college years, and I was uh, surprised to find out later that my husband, Michael, had actually met Meher Baba and had his family as a close connection with him. And so through Mike, I've gotten um, acquainted with the Baba community and learned about Baba. And he was, um, his followers consider him to be, considered him to be an avatar, a Christ, a Messiah. And... Um, he was a very profound teacher and a holy man, and in that belief system, their belief system, he was, in fact, God, and I have no reason to not believe that. So that was the image, but I didn't want to spell that out in the poem. Well, I think, I think you spelled out just enough in the Thank poem. You. But the last two lines puzzle me a little. From time to time, God needs a little rest. Could you talk a little bit about how you see God resting? That's a good question, John. Um, I, you know, I, I really hadn't thought of that. I, um, I was just, I was really kind of making light of the idea that God had come to visit and 
to me, the divine is always with us. Mm -hmm. And we tend to um, project human qualities onto God, mm -hmm. which is a, uh, I think we need to do that in order to understand God because it's, the concept is too big. Um, so I think that was just a way of making light of God resting in my home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's satisfactory, I think. <laughs> You have another poem called My First Day in Mexico, the briefest poem I've seen from you. Would you read that? I was so excited about the prospect of coming to Mexico. A new culture, new friends, new vistas, different foods and traditions. But mostly, I was looking forward to learning a new language, a different mix of sounds to express thoughts and feelings. I never imagined that what I'd want to say most of all would be, I want to go home. <laughs> the, the brevity of that poem, together with the surprise ending, is, is striking, I think, is, is wonderful. Uh, and so is the idea of language, learning Spanish, carried over into the sharp turn of that last line, what you want to say. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, whether in Spanish or English. Yeah, yeah. yeah that poem was, was written during my first day in Mexico. I was in Mexico for three weeks in February for Spanish immersion. And um, the reason I was there for three weeks is that's the way the flight schedule worked out. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I got down there and realized that I would be away from home um, for three whole weeks and... It was very different, um, and I was alone. I, I thought, what in the world have I done? You know, <laughs> it, it worked out very well. It was a wonderful school, and my, my accommodations were great, and I met wonderful people. But it was, I thought, three weeks. I kept thinking, oh, I should have done two weeks, but I, I did three weeks, so, and it, it worked out well. Well, that's kind of coincidental for me because when I joined the Marine Corps, I had a choice of two, three, or four years. And <laughs> I took three instead of two, which I rued later. <laughs> These poems say a lot about your, your personal experiences and your, uh, your background, and I think um, Heritage Seed uh, is, a, is a profound poem about your, the history of your family and your heritage. Mm -hmm. How'd you like to read that? Okay. The Greek cucumber starts are dying. The seeds are descendants of cucumbers brought from Greece in the 1920s by my grandparents, and for that reason held deep significance for me. They were doing so well until three days ago when the outer edges of the leaves turned white and started to shrivel up. And now, one by one, they are giving up and falling over, lifeless. I had such hopes for them, and I'm not quite sure what to do with this. It's frustrating to see them die right before my eyes. I feel so helpless and at the same time a bit responsible and guilty, even though I've done everything I know to do. It's a familiar feeling, a predictable pattern that seems to turn up with me and my relatives. I don't know why it's turned out this way. Many people are able to plant seeds and see them grow to fruition, and quite a few seem to have good relationships with their relatives a healthy sense of tradition and belonging. It's appealing and something that I thought I would like to have, both garden and family, that is. But for some reason, for me, it hasn't worked out. There must be a lesson in this, some deep insight, but I'm not sure what that might be. 
so I will plant the last of the Greek cucumber seeds, this time directly into carefully prepared beds, and hope for the best. I think it's remarkable the way you use seeds from Greece to represent Greek heritage. Mm. Uh, the viability of old seeds, and they're really old. They're from the 1920s. I'm surprised they were. Well, actually, they're descendants. They're they're several okay. generations. I see. So, okay. but they but they, they date back to yes, they do. Those. And that it seems to me fits perfectly with the heritage of foreign language, Greek, mm-hmm. and and Greek customs. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that connection occur to you? Do you remember? The. Uh, when my godson was married about four years ago, and it was down in uh, near Sebastopol, and we visited Uncle John and stayed with him, and he was everybody's favorite uncle. Oh, my dad, too, the two of them, just sweet, sweet men. And he had this um, incredible vegetable garden in Sebastopol. He had quite a reputation because it was this huge garden on the corner, and I think he fed half the town. And he gave me those seeds, and uh, they... I kept them in the refrigerator until I realized I, I, I was a gardener. I could try and do this. So, so uh, there was that real connection with Uncle John. And the other connection with, with Uncle John um, is he, all, he was a fisherman. He used to go out at Bodega Bay fishing and abalone-ing. And he had piles of abalone shells, which mm. he gave me. And now they're like jewels all over my garden. So, uh, and I did an icon. I painted an icon of St. John, but it was, it was really my, my uncle. You've painted quite a few icons in the, in the uh, Orthodox tradition, yes. uh, part of which is Greek. And yes. uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? How you well, it seems it? that's another way my heritage keeps um, surfacing in what I do. And it's really um, not a conscious not a conscious effort on my part. I, um, when I got my master's here at, at Humboldt State my, uh, in painting, in art, my, ma- my show was uh, objects on altars, a lot of potatoes and bread and so on, and uh, they ended up looking like icons. Mm-hmm. And um, it, then after I graduated and, and went off and was doing other work, I, did, um, I painted frogs for five years which, I, in retrospect, I get in these series, but I, I, I like to plumb the depths of whatever imagery. And they started looking like icons. Um, so, I, so I do traditional icons, but it really doesn't matter what I'm painting. It tends to start getting an iconic feel to it. And I, I, I think part of that is, uh, you know, we had talked about language being cellular. There's something very deep in there. And, and part of it could be my my exposure. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't raised in the Orthodox tradition, mm-hmm. but I was baptized Greek Orthodox, and of course, because of my father's side of the family, I was around it quite a bit. But I, I think it's deeper than that. The mm-hmm. icons are a very important um, part of my work. And so I, I, I do variations on icons. I do, I do, they're not strictly speaking icons, but I, I paint iconic images of animals and uh, and then I do traditional icons for churches mm-hmm. and individuals. Mm-hmm. Now, you have a parrot named Wickham. I do. Have you ever painted him? Lots. Yeah, I've done quite a few paintings <laughs> of Wickham. Yeah. You also have a poem about mornings with Wickham. Yes. How would you like to read that? All right. 
I wake to a subtle little chirping and stirring coming from beneath the quilt thrown over the birdcage. My parrot Wickham is waking up. Are you ready? He asks. Come on, come on. Want to go downstairs? Is he waiting for a response? Does he already know the answers to these questions? I think that he does. He's like a little attorney in there, gray suit and all. I've been told that attorneys never ask a question unless they know the answer. Are you ready? I am. Want to go downstairs? I do. The tougher questions he does not ask. If he were the kind of parrot that I could train to talk, I would teach him to start the day with proclamations rather than questions. Life is a gift. Each morning is a fresh beginning. God loves you. And then I would add a few commandments. Be grateful. Don't live in the past. Love one another. As it is, we start the day with questions, the bird and I. <laughs> now, there you have not only this, this magnificent image of this little gray parrot being a little attorney in his gray suit, which, which I love, but the parrot overall in the poem is a mirror image of the poet's language tendencies to questions, more than language, perhaps, psychological or spiritual tendencies. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Is that, is that something that you're aware of? Can you be a little more specific with that question? What, well, what the, the, the parrot does, asks only questions, not proclamations. That's true. And you say at the end that you start the day with questions, the bird and I. Do you, do you mean that you and the bird together deal with his questions or that you both ask questions? I think it's, uh, you know, often when, you, when I wake early in the morning and um, that place in between waking and sleeping and the existential questions present themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, what's, what does it mean? I, I often, memories will bubble up and I, I consider them and wonder about them or, um, and on a more, da more mundane level, just wondering what's ahead. What's mm -hmm. ahead that day? Mm -hmm. So, this is a, a longer poem about your Mexico stay. Would you would you let let us hear that? Sure. <clears throat> stay with a typical Mexican family and experience Mexican culture firsthand. The school's website advertised. It sounded great, so I signed up for three weeks. The first evening with my Mexican family, dinner was Hawaiian pizza from Costco. Anna and I sat at the table and got acquainted, while her husband Enrico and the three kids ate in front of the television in the other room, watching a dubbed version of Casper. It was a fairly revealing introduction. Down the street, another student was getting acquainted with her typical Mexican host family. The cousin of Anna, divorced with two young children, also had another student, a German boy, I think, living there, doing her best to make ends meet. When I finally met her near the end of my stay, she was wearing tight jeans, stiletto heels, and a t-shirt that said, make love, not war. I later learned that her mother visited from time to time and made derogatory remarks about the American student, thinking that she didn't understand Spanish. 
Another student paid the family directly and upfront, as the school advised. The only downside to that was that her Mexican mother ran out of money before the end of the week and wouldn't feed her. So the student ended up eating in the restaurant down the street. I don't think the school was misrepresenting the situation or promising something they couldn't deliver. I just made the mistake of focusing on the word Mexican rather than the more important word in the description, typical. <laughs> That's an interesting poem that is uh, a good example of poetic honesty, a poet being very honest, warts and all, about the subject. But in the last paragraph, you uh, partly you turn the blame on yourself there yeah. by saying that you concentrated on the the wrong word, which I take to be a very generous gesture <laughs> at the end. But the honesty is there, and I think that's refreshing in poetry today. You don't see it much. You mm -hmm. see a lot of uh, uh, what the poet thinks the reader wants to hear mm -hmm. rather than what's true. Did you want to talk about that? Well, just that I wrote a lot of poetry when I was in Mexico. I, I probably wrote... Well, at least one a day during that time. And um, there was, for me, there was no other way to be honest because it was my time to process what was going on. And uh, I, was, I was almost compulsive about it. It was interesting. And, th and that was my only chance, actually, to communicate in English, too. So I, that might have had something to do with it. Yeah. I felt at home there. And, and I think, too, with this, with this poem, um, so often for me, writing any or poetry... Uh, this kind of writing where it's just it's process as much as anything uh, is an opportunity to get a different perspective on what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And so the idea on this one was that uh, when I in retrospect, there really was no blame. It was what it was, you mm -hmm. know, and these were really wonderful people. And I had certain expectations that were unrealistic and they were offering what they could offer and what they offered was was genuine and generous so it was it was good for me to have a different lens for that you know I think most of us if not all of us are familiar with that kind of experience uh, we have an ideal picture in mind of what we're about to go through and then the real experience doesn't live up to it uh, mine was with the Grand Canyon I lived in Arizona for most of my life before I saw the Grand Canyon and I had looked at photographs of it and heard from lots of people about how gorgeous and huge and vast it was. And when I got there, the publicity outdid the canyon, you know. <laughs> I think that happens with the traditional bride's first night often, or it used to. And uh, uh, sometimes we go on vacation someplace that is so attractive to us, so beautiful. So we move there, and then living there is very different from yeah. being on vacation there. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, uh, it's something that uh, connects with a lot of us, I think. Mm -hmm. You have another Mexican poem here, Better This Week. Let's, let's listen All to right. that. Yesterday, the young man who sold me the beautiful painted crosses last week was back at school with his wares. He told me that my Spanish was better. I would like to believe him, but I think he might have said that because he wanted for me to buy more crosses which I did and would have done anyway. 
I think that these will make nice gifts for my friends. Scenes of village life, naive and fresh, painted on smooth wooden crosses of various sizes. They're lovely to look at and charming in their simplicity. But I think I like them so much because they show that grace can be found in village life. Something as simple as harvesting corn, cooking a rabbit for dinner over an open fire, or having a young Mexican artisan tell you that your Spanish is better this week. That's a very positive poem about Mexico. Oh I yeah, there were many positive things, and, and it was true. It was, it was a nice thing at the school, which was mainly Americans, a few Canadians, um, and uh, I guess in the summer they get people from all over the world there, but it, we would break at lunch and there often an artisan would be there with their wares and mm -hmm. it was nice to chat with them. And this particular young man gave painting lessons so we got to do some oh, did he? naive painting, which was lots of fun, yeah. Did that, uh, those lessons or the, the way he painted crosses influence your own paintings in any way? Are they more naive, for example, than They're, they were before? Uh, no, it didn't influence me, but it was it was fun to be with him and, and see his fresh approach and how the imagery was so alive for him. Mm -hmm. And and his family, as as is often the case there, had been doing that for generations. And so to, to the when he talked about his father and learning from his father and um, and and the symbols. What about the beauty of everyday scenes? Has that entered into your painting or into your poetry? That's a good question, John. Maybe in the poetry, not uh -huh. so much in the painting. I'm working, the, the painting now is, um, is more contemplative. It's dealing with, with imagery um, more as a starting point. So I'm not, I'm not using that so much. But now that you mention it, maybe um, there is that influence, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm working on a series now of the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. Uh-huh. And um and uh the shepherd I just I just am working on one of you know I am the good shepherd. So I'm focusing on uh, the sheep, the herd of sheep and that's kind of a naive thing and these guys did yeah. paint sheep. So yeah, yeah, influence comes from all over. <laughs> you have a poem called It's Not About You in which there are five paragraphs or stanzas of about the same size. Each one of them ends with the title, It's Not About You, which is an interesting structure. Would you read that so we can talk about that? Mm -hmm. In that dimly lit little cell with the mosquito net pulled up and secured around the bed, I pick up my book and begin to read, but then hear a soft voice, audible only in my heart. It whispers, it's not about you. In the middle of a conversation, when my emotions begin to charge and I feel anxious and frustrated and too involved in the matter at hand, I hear it again. It's not about you. Then again at the opening reception, where the wine flows, the food is lavish, and the spotlight is on art, I begin to take it a bit personally and feel good about myself, and then there's that little whisper. It's not about you. And when I look up at the night sky and see all of those stars spreading out and lighting up eternity, or gaze at the ocean, 
the waves gently rolling in, caressing the shore. I hear it again, this time in my whole body. It's not about you. But what is this it that isn't about me? And what is this me that it isn't about? Who is whispering this phrase in my heart? The questions persist, and I continue to ask, and hear once again, it's not about you. Uh, that's, that's very impressive for me, the, the repetition of the line, it's not about you. As I said, breaks it neatly into five sections. Each of those five sections depicting a, a separate but parallel experience of, in some way parallel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that focus on one idea from five different directions, it seems to me causes something like a hydraulic effect, bringing great importance or weight to the repeated line. Could you talk about that repeated line, particularly since I think until recently in driving through McKinleyville on Central Avenue, there used to be a sign that said, it's all about me. I guess it's about ego and taking things personally and and viewing life from another perspective, a greater perspective, what's really important. And it's not me that's important, you know, it, in, in any given situation. Um, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about any of us in particular. It's bigger than that. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think that's what the poem's about. I think almost any religion stresses that. Sure. Any of the major world religions. Sure. sure. Even the minor ones. And know. that's what love is. Love is really realizing that it's not about us. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, there are different kinds of love. And, that's right. Uh, but I suppose they all are like that. Yeah. As a final poem, I, uh, I would like to hear The Hawk. Could you read that, please? Okay. Bam. The window rattled like thunder at the impact of the bird that slammed against it. We ran outside and saw the small creature lying on the ground. His wing looked broken and he flailed around, a flurry of desperate activity. It was hard to see what kind of bird he was, but as he relaxed, straightened his wing and gathered that frantic energy into himself, we saw that it was a small hawk, a majestic, stern-looking little predator. He glanced our way for an instant, intense eyes meeting ours, and then flew off. Angelos means messenger in Greek, winged emissaries that bring promises, warnings, or protection. Gabriel brought good tidings to Mary, assurance that her travail would bring a great gift to all of mankind. Michael waged battle on high, throwing Lucifer down from heaven, purging that holy place of deceit and destruction. This little hawk seemed more like Michael with his fighting spirit and intense eyes, but his message echoed that of Gabriel, which I was left to ponder as he flew off into the pale blue sky. Thank you. You know, Claudia and I, my wife and I, have an ornamental cherry tree in our backyard. It produces negligible blossoms and no cherries but it holds several bird feeders that Claudia's put up, and they attract juncos, chickadees, goldfinches, stellar jays, and wood pigeons, 
along with the occasional grosbeak and pine siskin. One day I realized that this fruitless tree was heavily fruited. <laughs> Instead of bearing cherries, it bore a stunning array of bird life. It seems to me that human life is often like this. We think we're giving nothing back, but all the while we're giving something we don't really recognize. Assurance that her travail would bring a great gift to all of mankind. Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, Does this apply to the poet? I hadn't even thought of that. I was just, I wanted to think of various, um, the archangels yeah. and their, my, my strongest image of them and that's what came up. And that was a big one that, uh, you know, uh, and that's, I think that's a wonderful me metaphor of uh, Mary being humble and young and unassuming and being the mother of, of the Christ. Yes. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, John. My guest has been Catherine Burleson. You've been listening to the Mad River Anthology. The engineer was Tim Ayers. I'm John Brugaletta. If you have questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. On our blog and online archive of past programs can be found at madriveranthology.wordpress.com. The show is also available in iTunes. The Mad River Anthology airs the second and fourth Sundays of the month at 10 p.m. and is produced for KHSU located at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California. Thank you.